I am Andrea Butcher, and this is Being at Work. Being a leader is hard. So on this show, I set out to talk with experienced leaders to learn from their pivotal moments, how they led through the challenges we can all relate to but are often unheard. 2020 has been the roller coaster ride that none of us expected, from COVID 19 scares and losses to the intensity around racial injustice to the presidential election season and the incredible divisiveness. People are struggling. Each of our jumping off points is different, but no one is immune to challenge and struggle. I've experienced anxiety and worry this year in a way that I never have. So my own mental health and the mental health of my team and those that I love is of the utmost importance, which is why I invited today's guest to the show. Liesl Mertes is an acclaimed workplace empathy expert. Having experienced her own loss and struggle, which she'll talk about today, Liesl emerged with a deep understanding of what employees need to feel supported at work after a disruptive life event. As the founder of Handle with Care, Liesl works with groups that want to boost employee satisfaction as well as attract and retain better talent. Liesl's favorite clients are forward-thinking organizations who know the value in supporting their employees with empathy and compassion. Her expertise is broad, loss, returning to work, cultivating resiliency, compassion fatigue, how empathy impacts the brain, and no disruption is considered less significant. On these topics, Liesl is a dedicated speaker, writer, consultant, and host of the Handle with Care podcast. During our conversation today, we'll talk openly about how to develop greater empathy and create an environment in which everyone feels safe to feel whatever it is they are feeling. Check it out. Well, the work that I do is really deeply rooted um, in my own personal experience uh, with loss. So it was right around this time of year. Uh, in 2010, so a decade ago, where I was in my first year of an MBA program down at the Kelly School of Business in Bloomington. I had two small children at the time, uh, Ada and Magnus, who were three and one. And uh, I had said earlier in the year, I'd said yes to the Kelly School. And a week later, um, found out that I was unexpectedly pregnant with our third child, a little girl named Mercy. But I, I was I was very confident in my capacity to do business school and parenting and have a little baby uh, in my second semester. But we, so, you know, this time of year, at that point, um, we had realized that Mercy actually had um, a pretty profound birth defect. She had this large uh, fluid-filled sac on, on the back of her skull. And the doctors, you know, we were around Christmas time, we were in this waiting period um, because they they didn't know. They didn't know if they would be able to operate on her and she would have, you know, mild to, you know, pretty profound handicaps or if it would be terminal. And so it was this, this waiting and wondering. And I gave birth to her on February 15th in 2011. And she died just eight days later. Um, which was one of, I mean, it was, it was the most personal loss that I had experienced up to that point in my life. I'd had grandparents die, but to have a child die um, is something that marks you uh, for the rest of your life. And it was, you know, it's, it's daily hard 
Fast forward to a couple of years later, and my my youngest, he's a little guy named Moses, who's six years old now. He had an unrelated uh, condition. He has a, a heart defect that has required a number of open heart surgeries at Riley. He's uh, he's doing really well right now. He's he's like just the guy at kindergarten. But that was again stepping into this world of um, really realizing that all of these things that I that had come so easily to me, you know, whether that was work or graduate studies or just kind of effortlessly and efficiently moving through life, um, are so much more complex and complicated by grief and disruption. And um, it really makes a difference whether you are well supported or whether you're not finding that support either in your personal circles or at work, um, which led me to begin having uh, roundtables with people who had experienced disruption with managers and HR directors and beginning to see that for all the time that we spend at work, uh, we spend more waking hours doing work-related activities than we do with our families. And really, we don't we don't have a great way to train managers or coworkers or leaders in how to respond to these disruptive life events. And uh, 2020 has certainly uh, brought that question home for a lot of people. And so that directly connects to what I do. Oh, well, I'm looking so forward to hearing about how that plays out. But first, you know, I'd really like to create a space for your sadness around what happened in that situation. You know, you, because of our friendship and having gotten to know you, you know, you have taught me a lot about empathy and, you know, in our fast paced what's next world, it's easy sometimes to quickly jump over those things. So I want to just create a space for you. I mean, here you are 10 years after you found out you were pregnant with her and while I cannot relate to what you experienced, um, I am a mom. And so I can imagine just the deep, deep pain and hurt that you have around that loss. I'm so sorry for that. Thank you, Andrea. I am. Um, yeah. Thanks for making that space. Grief isn't really something um, that that you like uh, tidily like store in the in the attic of your psyche. Like, okay, I dealt with that. And now I can like put it to the side. It, it can come up in um, really unexpected ways and sadnesses. And so I, I get to live a very uh, full and busy life as the mother of four living children, ages six to 13. But there is always something like we were all together maybe a month ago uh, as an extended family. There were cousins around. Uh, and there was this moment where we're, we're like blessing the food before eating. And I was looking around at this really full scene and just reminded of like, Mercy isn't here. You know, there, there would be another child in the mix and she's just not here. And that's just a, it's a true and unresolved sadness. So it does keep cropping up. It feels really congruent in its own way that I actually, in some ways get to get to talk about her more than any of my other children as it relates to like professionally what I do. And so there's a really unique way that I get to carry her into lots of conversations that a lot of parents of deceased children, you know, it's, it's a distinct pain point where they're like, I know I'm the mother of this child, but almost nobody else does. And there never feels like there's a convenient or like socially appropriate time for somebody. Like it can feel that way to people. Like nobody ever talks about them. Well, and how she is such a part of your story, like you do get to talk about her, but you also in the language for living children, you know, when, when you say that 
it highlights Mercy as a part of the family, but she's just not here right now. But she is such a part of your family, of your story. You honor her so well in that way. Well, thank you. She is a part of our story. Yep. Yes. And so now, you know, you're using that experience to help organizations create space for employees to have disruptive events. And you're doing that in 2020 when there's lots of disruption. So much disruption. (laughs) We've all become bedfellows with disruption this year. Well, a couple of things. Let's start with how do you approach organizations? Because here's the thing. There's not an organization around the world that doesn't have employees that are struggling because everyone's struggling in some way. You know, it, may, it looks different, right? But everyone's struggling. So how do you approach organizations? And I suspect there are some like ingredients to success with your clients that are helpful for you in that process. Well, Lots of times we talk about the felt need and the reality that managers and HR directors and executive teams are facing. Um, And the question can sound like this, you know, are you struggling with keeping people engaged with the range of other things that are on their plate, you know, and, and, and what are some of those things? You know, you ask the question, what I hear a lot with clients is they're saying things like, "I, I have employees working from home and they're also homeschooling their kids or they're dealing with a partner who's been laid off, or, you know, people, people are going through relationship transitions and divorce, you know, there's all kinds of things that are really taking uh, away an employee's mental space to engage in the task that they're being paid for. So it's, it's connecting with that reality, which is, you know, it's, it's top of mind for companies because they're, they're still trying to, meet their bottom line and, you know, get through to 2021 and, you know, kind of staunch their losses. And then the question is, and how do you feel like you're meeting that need? You know, do you feel equipped? You know, what are, what are the steps that you're taking? And one of the things that I really talk about is that the numbers bear out that actually your ability to create a space at work with empathy, where people want to come back to in the midst of disruptive life events, that they actually believe that they will be met and supported and um, and helped is a huge part of helping them um, get back to any measure of productivity. I talk about helping people survive, stabilize, and thrive. And and just to you know, there's the the 2020 Empathy at Work survey um, by an organization called Business Solver. They've been doing the Empathy at Work survey for a number of years now, and in 2020. I think the number, the number was something like 84% of respondents, like employee level respondents said that they felt like uh, empathy is present or it's absence within their company had a direct link to their productivity. And the, the ancillary data point that was really like uh, eye opening was only 50% of CEOs or executive level leaders agreed, you know, so there's this. There's this really big gap right now with employees saying, no, I actually, empathy would help me if you just, you know, were able to give me more empathy, it would help me be more productive. And leaders thinking, well, maybe that's important, but I'm not so sure. And uh, it's, it's taking some of those data points, it's taking some of those felt needs and 
being able to connect it to some of what I do as a trainer um, and with curriculum and coaching and keynotes and to say empathy isn't just this squishy, like some people have it and some people don't. It's actually a skill set and a competency that can be taught if you believe it's important enough to learn. Well, so that's a great stat. You know, 84% say, yes, it has an impact on my productivity, either it being there or it not. So talk a little bit about what it looks like. You know, because I, I think about simple situations in which I'm hurting and just the acknowledgement of that, just literally one sentence around like, hey, that that really stinks or yeah, I can understand that's hard. That gives me such a lift. So talk about what it looks like and how you teach it. Yes, I like to teach it by introducing people to some empathy avatars, of which I have eight of them. I've I've just added another one. Uh, I continue to, as I talk with clients and develop these. And what they are, are they're these go-to responses that they're conditioned by your base personality, by your household of upbringing, by different aspects of things like, you know, your Myers-Briggs personality or your DISC profile. They're the go-to responses that we have when faced um, with somebody else's pain, disruption, or discomfort. So to give you a couple of examples, there's like a, a cheer up Cheryl, who is always wanting to look on the bright side. Like that's very important to that individual self-concept to be the optimist and to be cultivating that in other people. And what a cheer up Cheryl can often do in an encounter with somebody who's going through something really hard is she can rush that person to looking on the bright side. You know, for me, what that sounded like after the death of Mercy was people that would say, oh, you know, Mercy died. Well, at least you still have, you know, immediately they were like, at least you still have Magnus and Ada, which was true. I mean, that's that's observably true, but that never actually made me feel better in the moment. Um, yeah, what it forces then the person to do is they either have to like um, do this contortionist move where suddenly they need to be happy to make a cheer up Cheryl feel more comfortable, or they conclude like, you're not actually, you know, a, a safe person to talk to because you're not actually hearing me. Like you're just rushing me to be better. Commiserating Candace, who always wants to share her own hard story. Somebody starts to share, and you are right there with, like, well, let me tell you about my aunt and when she got breast cancer. Totally hijack the narrative. And to be able to introduce people to these sorts of uh, avatars kind of um, depressurizes the situation. You know, I go into companies sometimes and I'm, I'm training around how empathy is a foundation for having conversations about systematic exclusion and racial, you know, marginalization. And it's way easier for people to engage conceptually with how, you know, a buck up Bobby is a jerk and to be like, oh, sometimes I can be a buck up Bobby instead of like, no, you, you know, Gerald were a jerk last week. It's it's a way for them to like both observe the trait in this like uh, external other, but also identify with it. So, um, yeah, I find that it's it's a way for people to approach their behaviors uh, in a way that is memorable and also uh, not as judgmental as some of the conversations can feel when we're talking about our areas of weakness. And and we all have them. Like nobody does this perfectly all the time. Um, so there's an element of like humility. And another thing that I teach is when you miss someone, because you will, how do you go back around and make repairs? 
Yeah, the the for me as these avatars disarm the conversation. I suspect you get a lot of people that say things like, "Oh my gosh, I am totally a buck up Bobby," or "I'm totally a cheer up Cheryl." Right. Well, and I always I lead when I facilitate um, with just being out there with uh, some of my own stories of like, I'm totally a buck up Bobby when I'm trying to get my children out the door. Like when I am mobilizing, whether that's in a work situation or in a personal situation, when I have a goal in mind and this happens all the time in businesses, right? The goal becomes the thing. Like we've got to, you know, with, with the example with my children, like we've got to get to the grandparents' house by two o'clock because we said we'd be there. And when I'm just focused on that, it is so annoying to me. If anybody has feelings, because feelings are going to take time and they're going to distract. And, you know, I, I just want people to get over it. And how do we balance the goals that are important to achieve with, you know, the lived emotional experience of the people who are implementing those goals. And uh, it takes intention. Yeah. And it, I'm so glad that in the, you know, the, the HR space that there's, there's so much focus around integrating empathy into talent processes. And you're right. Like it, a manager trying to accomplish a goal, right. Is really going to focus on like, Hey, you, you got to get over this to get on with it. <laughs> and that's not sustainable in the long term. So integrating empathy into that conversation is is so important. And, you know, people can do both. So one element of within like the certification program that I do as I work with leaders, uh, I talk about these really important um, milestones, like the first day, the first week, and the first month after somebody has gone through something hard. And one aspect of what you're doing a lot as a leader is redistributing workflow. Like it's one of the levers that you can pull to be able to support people. Let me help take something off your plate. And the way that is expressed to like a supportive team. So I'll give you I'll give you an example of how you can still value like the goals that need to be met, but frankly, not sound like a jerk or like you're just having an empathy mess because so somebody's out because their their mother is dying of cancer, but it's it's end of the year, they are managing a number of accounts and they're gone. Now, if I am a manager conveying to the rest of the team that they're going to have to pick up the slack, I could come into that meeting and be like well, gee, I mean, isn't this just perfect? Like 2020 has been a total, you know, everything has hit the fan. And this is one more thing. I cannot believe that Andrea has got to be out. We are all going to have to be pulling, you know, double duty. And I just, this is the worst time that it could happen. And everybody's going to have to do more like that, like stressed out, judgmental, sort of a, a posturing really like it's it's not conveying that we care for you and it's also saying something subtle and powerful to everybody else on the team that if you have any element of need like in the future this is this is how we view you as just like a general inconvenience uh, and and we're gonna kind of trash talk you like in our meetings you can still convey as I work with managers how that conversation can go like you can come into the team, and be like, hey, some of you might have heard, Andrea is actually going to be out um, for the next month or so. She's taking care of her mother who's dying from cancer. And, and what that's going to mean is there's a number of accounts that we're going to have to be picking up the slack for. And I want to let you know that I, as your manager, 
I'm going to be right there with you, helping you be successful and all of that. Because when people are going through something hard, like we're a company that really wants to support them. And so we're going to be supporting Andrea. I'm going to be supporting you. There's going to be more work than usual, but we're going to get through this together because that's the kind of organization that we are. You know, that conveys the same sort of message, like work is going to be redistributed. You're going to have to pick up the slack, but it's too like, it's, it's a world of difference in how you're approaching it and what it's translating to the team. Yeah. And I, there's, there's two really important things I hear in that. Certainly. So the leader is really critical in how he or she positions the situation. You, you talked about his or her posture. That's such a, I can feel that. Is my posture open and focused on goals? Is my posture defensive, right? We, 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 can, we, all, have, we all have control over our own posture. We all get that. But the other part that I think is so important is the environment that the organization has created, the culture of the organization. Like you, you use the language the, when the leader was positioning that with the team, we're a company that, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a call for senior leaders to really think about the environment they've created and being really intentional about making some shifts if it's not a supportive environment. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of organizations that historically have been, you know, results first. And how does that play out? What do you see in that regard? I would say, um, especially my parents' generation, I'm, I'm 36. So that older generation that it used to be a lot more, just what you said, the accepted culture of business was it's only like the bottom line is the only thing that matters. My favorite companies to work with are the people who have a lot more of a holistic sense of mission and stewarding their people. Because yes, like you, you serve a customer, but you're also serving your employees. I mean, they're your, they're your front lines. They're the people that are implementing your mission to your customers every day. And there's a distinct cost to just burning through them. And I mean, company like 2020 has brought, it's, it's showing the cracks in the foundations for people just because there's, it's such a stress test. I hope that that will lead to a, a continued rebalancing, a reevaluation of processes. Like, wow, we, like, we don't do this well, or we don't do it consistently. Maybe like we really supported that one woman in IT, but we dropped the ball, you know, we supported her in her cancer diagnosis, but we don't know what to do when somebody is going through an adoption process that's complicated and long. And so it's about consistency across the board. And apart from the stress that 2020 is placing on the system, I mean, there's the reality that demographic trends are already pushing empathy more to the forefront because millennials and younger, like they have a much more, you know, it's, you always, you always run the risk of missing someone when you talk about like an entire generation, but <laughs> to broadly characterize a couple of generations, they have a lot more of a sense of this holism. Like I'm not my work life and home life. Like I'm an entire person. And if you're trying to like bifurcate me, like I don't want to work for an organization like that. And frankly, when we talk about disruptive life events, even if you were a baby boomer who thought like, this is my work, this is my life, the two don't intersect. I mean, they're poised just again in demographic trends to be having a lot more disruptive life events in their health, in their bodies. I mean, we're even seeing it in COVID numbers and whether they knew they wanted it or not, they actually do want to be supported. Um, we, we are inherently communal as humans. 
Well, and that that desire for holism, I love that language. I mean, that's really challenging leaders to grow in openness and humility and empathy and you know all of these relational behaviors that are or these skills that are so important. And it's really forcing a shift with leaders and organizations. A movement towards more empathetic behaviors is always most effective if it is genuinely championed from the top. And one of the things that I talk with executive letter level leaders about is to think back, like think back on a time if, you know, especially if you're older, you've had a moment like this where you have had something hard that has happened in your life. Were you well supported by your company? Were you missed? You know, were there, I, I think of, uh, a friend of mine who he spent 30 years climbing within uh, a very large and well-known company here in Indianapolis. And he talked about just how they, when he had a son who was born, who had to spend time in the NICU and Riley, and he was going from a sales role up in Wisconsin, having to come all the way down to Indianapolis all the time. And he knew, he said, I knew at that point that if I ever said anything to my manager, it would only be used against me as a reason why I didn't meet my sales numbers. And, and he said, so I never said anything about it. I never said that this was going on in my life. I just stuffed it. And on the one hand, like he was successful enough. He kept getting promoted. He kept rising through the ranks, but his marriage crumbled. He had, you know, all sorts of like chronic stress that he was absorbing and it was not without a cost. And Stories like that, if they've been poorly supported or when they can remember, like, I remember when I was 25 and my grandma died and my manager, you know, was able to just let me have the time that I needed and didn't make me feel bad. Like to share those stories and to say, this is this is what we want to be as a company or this is what we don't want to be. It creates the space because it's hard if you are like on the lower level of an organization to claim the space to be able to talk about some of these things. But if leaders are actually making the space for the conversation or even just talking about the stress of COVID, wow, you know what? It's been really overwhelming for me and my wife or for me and my husband or for me and my partner as we have had everybody at home. Or it's been really, you know, overwhelming for me as I've been all alone and I haven't had anybody like even to be able to be like, oh, we can talk about that. We can give voice to that at work. It's really healthy and it models space for other people to step into. And it's hard to do. So there's so much value around empathy. Like it's the case is clear, particularly at a time like like this. I'd love to talk very specifically about making the space. Because I have empathy for leaders who struggle with it, right? I struggle with it. I, in my optimism and can-do attitude and resiliency around like, let's just get at it. You know, I, there are so many times in my career when I have not made space. I have skipped over, I've pretended, I've denied, and no doubt, I left people feeling unheard and unvalidated. And in, in, as I've really reflected on that, like one of the things that I've, I've come, because it's, it's easy for me to rationalize that, but the truth of the matter is, it is hard for me to sit in pain. Physically, it is hard. So it takes a lot of integrity. It takes a lot of discipline. So what advice and encouragement do you give to leaders for how, how to make that space when that's a hard thing to do? Yeah, 
I recognize the maturity and the self-reflection that is implicit even in your process to be able to say like, oh, it, it takes intention to be able to do this. Well, there are different, there are different personalities, right? There's different um, personality types that get to an executive level, but universally it is hard. It is hard in like America. It's hard to talk about pain. Um, I hear that. I talk about that within my trainings. So you can be motivated by a couple of things. You can be motivated by those numbers. You know, you, you as an executive leader could see something like the Empathy at Work study to say, wow, my people are really wanting more empathy. They're wanting it to be okay that they're having a hard time. You could look at, you know, there are other data points that talk about just how, like, even in like heavy industry, when people in the year after, like, they've experienced grief, they're that much more prone to like getting in accidents or making errors on the job. Like that, we if we expect people to just keep doing what you said that you you know had needed to do of like pretending or pushing through, like, it makes us like less good in other areas of our personal lives. It actually does make us less good in our work. There's studies that support that. So to be able to equip those leaders with some data points to say like, this isn't just something that I, because empathy is my wheelhouse, I'm like pushing you towards because I want you to pay me. Like it actually does affect your people. I think, I think a lot of the best leaders, they're motivated by like a desire to be good to their people, but also by data points that shows them that, it's good for business and good for their people. And then, you know, it's, it's being able to, it's some of the work I do like in coaching sessions. Okay. Let's, let's look at what are things, Andrea, that um, have been challenging for you in COVID right now? What of that can you share with your team in a way that is like vulnerable and present? You know, you don't have to go into every aspect of everything that's been hard, but even, you know, what does it mean to, to start off a meeting during election week? saying something like, hey, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, I know that this is a super intense time for people. I found myself really distracted and just wanting to bake bread and cookies and, you know, checking the news all the time. It's definitely taken my attention. How about the rest of you? How's it going? You know, like that, that's not necessarily like the deepest personal revelation, but it's saying like, I found it hard to focus and I've had a quirky way of coping with it. What does that look like for you? Um, and then really, I mean, the biggest thing for a leader to do is it's not becoming your personal counseling session. It's opening the door and then actively listening because people do, they want to step, they want to be able to step through that. And then it's paying attention more to what they're saying and not being all wrapped up in your head of like, what am I going to share or not share? Yeah, that's really good. I, I very much appreciate the check-in for all leaders around what like what are you motivated by? And at the end of the day, if you are motivated by the numbers, <laughs> I mean, it's, you're probably not going to show up with empathy. You know, I, as I as I reflect on that, my care and love for my team members is more important to me at the end of the day. That's bigger than the results that we get. And I know, because I see with our clients, I know that the more productive and engaged they are, the more they're going to serve our customers in a really effective way. So that's that's where it starts, right? Is leaders checking in? Like, what am I motivated by? And then I love, I love you the simplicity in, yeah, it doesn't have to be a personal counseling session, but just checking in with people and being vulnerable, sharing where I'm struggling. Those are simple things that all leaders can do. 
That's very, very practical. We start all of our team meetings every Monday morning with what we call positive focus. It's just an opportunity for everyone to share, like just something good that's happening in their lives. And what I have found through that is it's such a good connection tool and it's a way for us to get to know each other more so and set such a tone for openness and hearing each other and respecting wherever we are. And that has been a really helpful tool for me as a leader. So I see how, especially in the midst of like all the pressures of COVID and just what 2020 is, how that can be a really helpful reorienting. I think of like a training session that I sat in on within the last couple of weeks. And the question that began was, you know, what are you feeling grateful for? What's something that has made you laugh? It's powerful to turn that positive intention towards something. Would you say, do you regularly have times, uh, whether that's one-on-one or in a team setting to talk about, um, not like your area of negative focus, but what are areas of need that you have right now or pain points that are present? Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? To give space for all of it. Yeah, because, you know, that's that's something that, ooh, you know, it just feels so messy to begin to open up. And if we open it up, like, ooh, is it going to like dominate all the conversation? And does that really relate to our goals? But yeah, if people if people don't, that's the thing, you know, organizationally, if there's never a place for that, when people are suddenly in the thick of it, they feel like their very like experience is not congruent with work. Oh my gosh, I'm going through a horrible divorce. I don't know if I have very much at all to be, you know, happy for. And does that mean that I don't have a place? You know, that's where, you know, sometimes I speak at like diversity, equity, and inclusion conferences and events, because actually, I mean, when we talk about inclusive environments, that is across, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation. It's also across life experience. Like if everybody else really things are going well and they're buying houses and kids are graduating and all of that. And I'm like, my life is falling apart. And I don't know, like, do I suddenly feel like super excluded from the reality of everyone else? You know, that's, that's such a good challenge because there have been there have been a lot of times at, on Monday mornings when I know something's going on with someone. So I'll preface it with, you know, we we aren't feeling positive about all things. And I mean, maybe maybe renaming it. It's really not positive. It's your focus, whatever that is. Show up, show up with that. And this is because because this is a space where I want everyone to feel seen and heard. And you know what? I'm going to rename. It's just your it's your focus, whatever that is, or something like what what is looming large. You know, that's maybe not necessarily. And and I still think that there's a tremendous power. And frankly, I mean, for you, you have such a gift of cultivating positivity. Like that is a superpower for you. And it's something that is desperately needed right now. So I don't think you have to get rid of the positive focus. Like that's its own gift. But yeah, having having a having a way for people to talk about what is dominating their focus right now. You know, like my, my dog that I love and who's been my companion through all of COVID and through everything, like he's really sick and I'm preoccupied with that right now. You know, or it could be like, I, I can't wait. I get to go paddle boarding this afternoon because it's 70 degrees and I'm super excited. Creating space for people to show up however they're feeling, right? That's, that's the key for leaders right now. And, and I think that we've experienced perhaps in like in good communities or counseling that actually to give voice to something hard 
helps alleviate some of the burden. Lots of times we feel like when somebody says something hard, like, do we have to fix it or do we have to delve into it? Like actually just to to receive that and be like, I hear you. Like that actually is its own like exhalation for the person powerful, like just to be able to say, you know, like you can share with me something like complex and sticky and I don't have to have like the answers or the counseling modalities. I can just say, Andrea, that sounds like a lot on a Wednesday morning. That's crappy. And you feel like, you know what? I'm not carrying this a lot. Like it actually activates the mirror neurons in your brain to help like stabilize the out of control area. Like there's brain science behind what it does to your like amygdala and your higher functioning. It's there. It's helpful. Yes, because it's real. Like somebody acknowledging what's really going on. I mean, acknowledging the reality of what I'm feeling. I think that's what it is for me when someone says something like that. Like, man, that's that stinks or that's hard. I can, I can see how that would be really awful. It's like, yes, thank you for naming that for me. Thank you for seeing that. What I talk about, like in my, my trainings, like if you, if you live with a partner and uh, let's say like I've, I've had a Saturday, you know, where I'm, I'm like in charge of the home and the, the dog has vomited on the floor. The kids have been fighting. I've like broken a plate, you know, all of that. And if I, if I come home and I, I, you know, Luke comes home to me and, and he's like, so how you doing? And I, I launch into, I, I am not great. Like the kids are terrible to each other and toes are puked. And like, I broke this thing. If the first thing that he says to me is like, well, you know, Tozer wouldn't throw up if you didn't feed him table scraps. Like, were you feeding him table scraps? I'm going to be like, you jerk. Like, I don't, I don't want you to troubleshoot my thing with the dog. I just want you to say, that sounds gross and bad. And it's like, sometimes we make empathy. Like, it is more than that. There's more places you can go. But it's not apart from that. Like, just bearing witness. Like, that sounds crappy. And I go, yeah, it does. Thanks. Just bearing witness to what's happening with the people that we love. Yeah, that's so good. Lisa, thank you so much. So many good takeaways. A couple of key takeaways for me. Just you, the reminder of for, orga for organizations, creating an environment that allows people to feel what they're feeling. So it's both the culture, the environment, and the things that leaders are doing. I mean, I think those, that's the key for organizations. And then all these tips that you've provided for leaders around making the space, really thinking about what leaders are motivated by, just being intentional and, and being aware of our posture and how we're showing up and positioning, being intentional about the words that we use and our tone through that. Thank you for all these great reminders. It has been a lovely conversation, Andrea. Thank you. Yeah. So if our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? You should go to my website, which is lieselmurtis.com. You'll find all sorts of information there about the keynote trainings, the certifications, the coaching options that I have. You'll also find links to my podcast. I am also a podcast host, the Handle With Care Empathy at Work podcast. That is such a great resource. Um, in each episode, I there's a guest who talks about something hard that's gone down in their life, and they give you the behind-the-scenes look of what people did that was super helpful and what people did that was really toxic. And uh, we end with three key takeaways to make you a better manager, coworker, friend. And so whether, yeah, whether it's 
suicide or alcoholism or divorce. There are a ton of great people telling their stories. So both of those are great resources and places to start. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a Being at Work story. 